You're listening to TIP. Hey, how's everyone doing out there? On today's show, we have reassembled our investing mastermind and have new stock picks for the first quarter of 2019. Since the last time that we've talked about the stock market, it's had a very strong drop and an equally strong recovery. The purpose of our mastermind discussion is to demonstrate to the community how we think about different investing ideas. Some of the picks that we talk about are not selected for investment, while other times they are. The thing we really want listeners to walk away from the conversation is the methodology and the questions that the group is proposing to troubleshoot assumptions and identify risks associated with different investment ideas. So with that said, here's our discussion with Toby Carlisle from the Acquirers Multiple and Hari Ramachandra from Bits Business. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Preston Pish. And as always, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson. Like we said in the introduction, we're going to be doing the mastermind discussion for the first quarter of 2019. And we have our good friends, Toby Carlisle and Hari Ramachandra here with us. And uh, guys, welcome back to the show. Excited to hear your picks. Hey, happy to be back. Looking forward to it. Same here. Like we always do here, we we always try to figure out who's going to be the first victim in the uh, queue. So uh, do we have any volunteers? And if not, I guess I can go. Yeah. Why don't you take it away, Preston? Oh, boy. I, uh, I anchored that one. So last time we were on the show, I want to start off by talking about the last time we were in the mastermind. I made a bold call with a short on the S&P 500. As ugly as the, uh, what is it, like a 17 to 18% bounce that we've seen since uh, Christmas Eve, this play worked out fairly well for me because I, I offloaded some of the position there at around the Christmas, literally the day after Christmas, I was up quite a bit, I'd say 15% in the position or something like that. I took a little bit of money off the table. And as it kept coming back up after that point, Man, it was painful to watch a bounce. I was expecting maybe a 5 to 10% bounce on the S&P 500, but it came back and literally went back to my entry point. And at that point, I literally sold the remaining position that was still on there. So although I made a little bit of money on the position, I can't say it was, uh, it was like a cash cow by any means. But man, you don't fight the market. I've learned that. I did not keep the position on after it sort of, you know, went past my entry point. So just kind of an interesting experience. I think I was a little lucky when I put it on and was ahead in the position and it was easier to, to kind of keep it on. And then after we had such a huge movement, it was that's just how I was playing it, especially because it was a short. I took some gains while I had them. And unfortunately, don't have the position, even though I, I still have a bearish sentiment across the market. With all that said, I'm here to pitch a new stock pick. And man, this one I sent a message to the guys really late last night and I said, here I am, it's late and I'm recommending a retail company that we have recommended in the past and it just, it does not feel right to uh, recommend this company, but I'm going to do it anyway. Bed, Bath and Beyond. We have talked about this pick multiple times on the show. Every time it comes up, it just sounds uglier and uglier. When I look at this pick from whenever we talked about it the first time, the price has come down tremendously. It's at around $16.70 today. The thing that I am impressed with 
with this company. There's a, there's some things that I like, and then there's some things that I don't like. The thing that I like is that the revenue has not gone down when you look at the top line of the company's performance. This company's still banging out $12 billion a year, and it hasn't gone down. When you look at... Let me just spout off some numbers here. You go back to 2014, they were at $11.5 billion. The year after that, they were at 11.8. The year after that, 12.1, 12.2, 12.3. The last 12 months are at 12.4. So when you look at the company's ability to keep earning revenues... They're definitely not growing like in a major way. If anything, they're just sustaining what they've got. But what I really like about the company is they're still kicking off decent cash flows. I would argue that the last year was probably not one of their best, but they're still kicking off very meaningful cash flows. And whenever I go in and I do an intrinsic value on this, and I mean, my intrinsic value assessment is extremely pessimistic. To the point where I have factored in that the free cash flow is going to continue to diminish by negative 5% for a majority of my estimate. 80% of my estimate was that the cash flows were going to go down by 5%. So, with this negative trending free cash flow model that I've come up with and the price that you can buy this for at $16.69, I'm getting an IRR. And I hate, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I'm getting an IR over 15% on this. And that's extremely high with a very pessimistic view of the future cash flows on it. That's kind of my uh, narrative on why I think that this is going to perform better than cash. (laughs) And if we look at how Buffett's allocating a lot of his investments these days, almost everything's going into cash. So this is my bold call for a retailer. The last thing I want to talk is the trend or the momentum on the company. When you look at the momentum on this one, you're really starting to see what appears to be price stability. I'm not going to say that you're that you're out of the woods yet here on this one, but I think when you're looking at the price momentum, typically the volatility on this is around 20%. If you're looking at the volatility over an annualized basis, it'll move around 20 to 25%. And when we look at where the price kind of bottomed out, it hit like mid $10 range, like 10.50ish, somewhere around in there. And now it's at $16.70. It hit that bottom, uh, looks like December 17th. So right around the uh, right around the Christmas timeframe is when it bottomed out at about $10. And so this thing's already up 60% since December. That was like a really, I mean, you've seen the market bounce 17%. This thing's jumped nearly 60%. And so I think that that's a pretty strong bounce above the volatility range. So I'm saying that the momentum and the, the trend might be seeing a break. So with that said, I'm very curious to hear y'all's comments. It's just way too cheap. Acquirers multiple of about five for something that's got revenue growth like that. Yeah, I, I really like it. I think it's a, I think it's a good pick. You know what's painful for me is Jesse uh, Felder. I was talking to Jesse. I want to say like December timeframe. I can't remember when we had our conversation, but he brought up this pick again, and it had completely dropped off my radar from whenever we were talking about it on the show because when we talked about it last, it was a screaming buy. I mean, it was it, in my opinion, it was a great buyback whenever we were talking about it on the show, and then the price just the market was saying, "Nope, it's going lower," and it sure enough, it, it did. And so when Jesse had mentioned. That he was buying it back in whatever it was, December, November, or something. I was just like, oh, this this company just continues to abuse everybody who talks about it. And here I am talking about it. Sure enough, you look at when Jesse entered this thing, he's already up 60% in like a month. So 
Stig, I really want to hear your thoughts on it because I know you've uh, played with this thing before. Well, I, I sort of played with it. I used to own it back when it was in the 60s or 70s. And I think by purely by chance, some divine powers, probably Jesse, told me to sell it because even though that the numbers look good, it was not. I think I pitched it back in 2017, something like second quarter. And we'll just make, a, make sure to link to that pitch in the, uh, in the show notes. The stock was trading in the low 20s. For me, that was just so obvious to buy that. Luckily, we're accompanied by some smart guys. Jesse was like, stick minus five or minus 10 or whatever I put into my sheet. He was like, no, <laughs> this is not a good business. But you know, I, it is an ugly business, but the price is so good. Oh my God, the price is good. So this is just the balance that here we are looking at. If you look at some of the numbers that you also pointed out, Preston, you know, the, the top line around 12 billion, you would expect that to slide. But what we have seen with retail and almost everyone in retail is that they have lower margins. And the same is the case for Beth Bath Beyond. So if you go back to 2016, the revenue was 12.1 billion. Trading 12 months is 12.4. But today the operating margin is 4.4, whereas it was 11.7 a few years ago. There are a few reasons for that. One of the reasons is that to sustain that revenue, they're providing more and more discounts, typically in form of coupons. That's kind of like it hurt them. And then they have been doing massive investments in North Carolina and the data centers because they are slowly moving into e-commerce, which they're not doing that well and where the margins are also lower. I was doing some of the numbers too, and I think I was even more pessimistic than Preston. I think it put in minus 10 and even allowed for minus 20 in my model. And it still looks like a decent pick. <laughs> even if you do that, which is like minus, I think I have like 12% return or something. So there are quite a few things to be said about that. Perhaps we're doing the calculations wrong. Perhaps it's not a, if I had to play devil's advocate, it's not a minus five, it's not a minus 10, it's not a minus 15. It's a company that will experience negative cash flows. I think what I don't like about Beth Bath Beyond, and obviously whenever something is trading at, the price Beth Bath Beyond is, is at compared to the earnings, there is always something wrong. I think the management of the company is something I am quite worried about. I think they were compensated massively and they have been for quite a few years. I don't think they have performed and they're still making a ton of money. There's just a, a few weird decisions in terms of capital allocation. You know, back in 2015, when they only took on 1.5 billion in debt, why were they doing that? And then they started to paying out dividend at a time where they should be buying a lot more stock. It seems a bit silly the way they've been allocating the capital over the past five, seven years, which is just like more like general concern about the management. I can easily see why Preston would pitch this. I mean, it is a very, very attractive pick, and I don't know if it's a value trap today. Your discussion about the margin, I think, is really the key point that if you're looking just at the top line, it's going to be like, oh, well, it's it's hanging in there. It's still doing good. But you're not talking about all the extra marketing dollars, all the things that they're doing that's chewing into the free cash flow of the business relative to three or four years ago or five years ago. It's taking a lot more effort and a lot of friction for them to continue to generate that top line. And I think that's maybe why it's been penalized so much in the last couple of years. And I think it's yet to be determined whether this trend continues to persist. Maybe we're just seeing a quick bounce in the price because maybe the selling got ahead of itself. And maybe the trend is that the price is going to keep getting punished moving forward. I don't know. I just think that it's something that is worthy of assessment for somebody else out there to kind of dig into the financials, come up with your own assessment of whether you think that this trend is going to override the current bounce that we've seen in the price since December. 
I find it interesting. And I think that the momentum's just a little bit different than when we looked at it previously. I'm assuming that this is not a long-term recommendation. I'm just wondering about your timeline for this. I don't know how to answer that. I mean, when I look at it and I look at the revenues, if the revenues weren't growing, I probably wouldn't even recommend the company. And I can't even say that they're growing. I'd say that they're remaining flat. So I think that's what makes this so tricky is, is you're seeing them devour their margin. Okay. And the trend on the margin is, is not good. I think the next thing that you're going to start to see maybe start trending in the negative direction is the revenue. So that's where it's really hard to, to be able to say whether they're out of the woods or not. I, I don't know, Hari. So last time whenever we discussed this, and Toby, I, I'm sorry to put you on the spot here. I think you said that you put that in a basket of very, very cheap stock. So it was not a qualitative assessment so much of Beth Bath Beyond, more that it would be a mean reversion type of bet you put in with, with all the retail picks for that matter. Something like Bed Bath and Beyond that it's left in the left in the bargain pile. The revenues are still pretty good for Bed Bath and Beyond, so that's a positive in its favour. There's clearly some discounting going on to get people. You know, that's because it's much much easier to buy everything on Amazon, but it is very very cheap on the sort of multiples that I like to look at. So it's one of those things that I would put it on as a small position and not worry about it too much. Just look at it in a quarter or a year, and you'll probably find that it's had a little bounce. Reassess it then. Sell your loss at that point. Is that what you're saying? It's such a tricky thing to to figure out. One of the things I was pretty excited about was whenever they wanted to enter e-commerce and you know invest all that money into it. And it just didn't seem to have panned out. And I'm not really sure where the strategy is or what they can do. I mean, I know what the strategy is. I just don't think that their new e-commerce strategy is really going to make a lot of sense. Why would you be able to ask Beth Bath Beyond to compete with Amazon? They used to have that mode, and perhaps you might argue that still do in terms of brick and mortar. Amazon is coming to that. They have close to 600 fiscal locations now, and it's all better data driven. So it's not only the online part of it, but also the offline part of it. They have all the data they need in terms of making the best stores, which I just don't see Beth Bath Beyond keep up. Another thing, and I know I'm just not the target group here, but it's not a good experience to enter a store. I even went into one with Preston. I always feel like after I go there, I, I kind of feel like I'm getting ripped off or that I'm paying a higher price than what I could get somewhere else. And it's always, anytime I have gone there, it's because I needed whatever it was I was getting that day. And I would also say, I think a lot of people go there for betting. They go there for something that they kind of need to see instead of ordering online. I don't know. I the numbers, I, I just cannot get over the numbers when I when I'm looking at the intrinsic value and I'm using such a terrible future cash flow and I'm still coming up with fifteen percent. It's like, holy moly. I'll make sure to link to the episode where we pitched it. And we also created a stock analysis, I think it was back in twenty eighteen, about Beth Bath Beyond. You can check that out also. We're also going to link to that. Everyone can sign up at tipemail.com if they would like these to be sent directly. All right, guys. Any volunteers? I'm happy to give it a lash. I'll let you guys laugh at this one. I was running my screens and the thing that really stands out to me is how many steel companies have popped up in the screens. And it's a pretty long list. US Steel, ArcelorMittal, Ternium, Nucor, Steel Dynamics. And so I went through and I found my two favorites out of that list. And there's a, I'll talk a little bit about steel and why these two in particular are my favorites from that list. So my two favorites are Nucor, N-U-E, and Steel Dynamics, which is S-D-L-D. 
I'll just start with steel dynamics because it's the, in my opinion, it's the cheaper of the two, but it is also the smaller of the two. Let's start out first. Steel is an incredibly cyclical business that moves around a lot. And if you look at the steel prices at the moment, they do look like they're at the higher end of the range than at the lower end of the range. So that might give you some pause. The other thing to mention is that at the moment, there's this, the trade war is going on and that's the, there's a 25% tariff that's been slapped on Chinese imports about a year ago. So I think that that might start turning up in the financials uh, sometime soon. So the reason I like Nucor and Steel Dynamics, partially it's because I think the downside is a little bit more protected than other companies like US Steel or ArcelorMittal. The, the main reason for that is that Nucor and Steel Dynamics use these electric arc furnaces, which is a technology that basically uses electricity to make steel. So they use smaller mills, the blast furnaces are a little bit less efficient at this at lower levels. So I think they can basically they can turn them on and off more easily. So if the steel cycle goes down, then there's a little bit of protection there. The, the two companies that I like, particularly Steel Dynamics Enterprise Value is $9.7 billion. Market cap is $8.5 billion. So there's a little bit of debt, modest amount of debt in there. New core is uh, a little bit bigger. It's uh, enterprise value around $21.7 billion. Market cap's about $18 billion. Both of them are trading on acquirers multiples. New cores on about 6.4. Steel Dynamics is a little bit cheaper at about 5.5. Both the balance sheets look really good. Lots of free cash flow at this point. I think it's just, it's a way to play any sort of, if a whole lot of infrastructure spending comes in, I think these two are going to perform very well. I think they're undervalued where they are right now. So I don't mind a little basket of steel stocks, Nucor and Steel Dynamics being my two favorite, but you could also look at US Steel, ArcelorMittal, Turnium, various others that I mentioned there. That's my macro pick. <laughs> That's what I was That's thinking. Macro. I was like, this is, this is a very macro-centric play here. Is your expectation that uh, these prices are going to keep going up, I'm assuming? At the moment, they're priced. They're all priced at the very lowest multiples that they have had over the last decade or so. It's low multiples on peak earnings or, or high earnings. I appreciate that. So that's the that's the risk that everybody sort of assumes that there's going to be a pretty significant downturn here. So if the five year average, and and that's true for all of its ratios, just cheap on a ratio basis relative to its price sales, 0.75 versus 0.8 for its five year average. So the question is, if the steel prices sort of maintain or rise from here, then these are going to be way too cheap. If steel prices go down, then these two are the better ones to be in because they're going to be able to, it's a cyclical business and they can you know, sort of switch off their mills, which gives them some protection on the downside. Could you talk to us a bit more uh, about the trade war? You talked about this tariffs that is about to be imposed. And is that even a competitive advantage, given that you have so many steel producers in China, some of the biggest in the world, and typically state-owned? And it's so important for the Chinese economy to just keep on producing steel whether or not they need it. How can I look at this trade war that we look at right now? That's a great question. There's no, I don't think there's any competitive advantage in these businesses. They're commodity businesses. It's just a matter of being reasonably priced relative to where their operating income is right now. And my view that steel prices probably maintain are a little bit higher than this in a year or so. I was curious to know, are these picks based on just valuation or is it based on their location in terms of where they're headquartered because of uh, obviously the trade war? Because there are companies like Pasco, which are not in your basket. So I wanted to understand how you're picking them. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. I was using the Acquirer's multiple screens. If, if you look at the screens, that they're, they're filled at the moment with these steel and steel input type companies. And so when I see a whole industry and its inputs getting cheap, I think that's interesting. I think that means that there's some potential for something to happen there. You know, something that I'm seeing that's interesting with this pick, Toby, is you've seen the uh, the top line increase by a substantial margin in the last four to five years. And through that same period of time, their operating margin has also gone up, which typically you're not seeing. And just to kind of put apples to apples here, in 2015, the operating margin was 6.8. And today it's at 13.7%. So, I mean, you've practically doubled the operating margin as the revenues have grown tremendously over that same period of time. They went from $16 billion to $25 billion. So that's not something you typically see, I don't think, with such robust growth on the top line to see the margin go with it. Is that something that's specific to 
the steel industry or yeah i mean steel prices are up a little bit over the last five years although they're down over the last like close to year six months that might be it's a short-term sort of that's the risk of something like the way that I do my valuations, that the underlying is just not sustainable. We go back to pricing. It was more like in 2015 when when the entire steel industry was really struggling. At the moment, I think they're cheap based on where the steel price is. I've got no real view on the steel price other than there's tariffs and some plans for infrastructure spending in the States, just one way to capture that. And just so people know, I was in my mind, I was looking at Nucor and I was just talking the numbers and I know you you had recommended multiple things, but the numbers that I was quoting there, just so people know, was Nucor, N-U-E is the ticker. Or Steel Dynamics, N-U-E or S-T-L-D are my two favorite. All right, Stig, I'm curious to hear uh, about your pick. My pick is Alibaba, ticker is B-A-B-A, traded as an ADR in the States, and it's a huge Chinese conglomerate. Uh, the market cap is $480 billion. So it's just massive. Just to give you some numbers, you know, Apple is 850, Amazon 800. Uh, Facebook actually is slightly smaller at 460 billion. So it's a massive company. And most of that revenue comes from e-commerce and it's primarily in China. The market share is 58% of all online retail in China. They really have a dominant position there. Other than that, they're also uh, known for Alipay. Together with Tencent, they are doing all the mobile payments, more or less, in China. That is through a company called Ant Financial, which is an affiliate company of Alibaba. It's owned 33% of Alibaba, and it's controlled by the founder, Jack Ma. It's also the highest valued fintech company in the world, twice the size of Goldman Sachs, just to give you an idea of how massive it really is. Another very interesting segment is the cloud business. I know we're going to talk more about the cloud here later with Harris Pick also, but it's it's a very interesting business unit that Alibaba is investing heavily in. That's also why we see some of the hidden in the margin. Alibaba is already the fourth or fifth largest globally, depending on how you measure it, after Amazon, Microsoft, IBM, and Google, but by far the largest Chinese provider. Very interesting, especially uh, now that we can expect China to go into the cloud as well. And we saw this grow with 84% year over year. Very, very interesting that we might go back to later. Talking about the industry and business model, Alibaba is typically referred to as the Amazon of China, which is partly true, but not quite. It's primarily selling through Taobao, the site Taobao, which means search for treasure. It's probably not a very known site in the West, but it's the largest in China and it's the ranked the eighth most popular website in the world. So there's massive traffic there. It's launched in 2003 and there's just hundreds of millions of products and services from millions of sellers. The interesting thing is that Taobao doesn't charge transaction fees and it's free for merchants to join. The way that Alibaba makes money is through advertising and different features to boost sales. For instance, you can message the vendor directly through Alibaba's uh, system. If you look at some of the competitors and threats, one might say that Alibaba has close to no threats, given the size. Just to give you in comparison, you know, Amazon claims up towards 50% of all online retail in the US. I would say that they do, or at least they can expect to get into trouble. Primarily from Tencent, the other Chinese huge conglomerate. We had John Huber from Basit Investing who pitched that not too long ago, and we will make sure to link to that episode. 
Tencent is slowly moving into the retail space, not only through the stake that they have in JD.com, which is 16% of market share in China, but simply just through their size. You can kind of compare this to the states where, you know, back in the day, Apple did this, Facebook did another thing, Google did a third thing, and now they're slowly starting to compete with each other, like in the same space. And we see the same thing with Alibaba and, and Tencent. So for me, that is the main threat. The other reason why I'm saying that is I think that data is really going to be the key in the uh, decades to come. Data is the main driver of AI. You have no other country in the world has more data than China and no other companies in China than Alibaba and Tencent. So I think that those two companies are going to compete on the retail market. Amazon China is less than 1% market share. And I think it will be very difficult for a Western company to compete in China. Quite a few companies have tried and failed. If you talk about the moat, one of the modes I would like to talk about is that Alibaba has sort of its own universe. You don't go... F- to Alibaba to something else. It's not like what we have in the States that you have a Facebook's app and you can get that through you know, Apple or through Google. No, it's the own closed system. To give you an example of that, Baidu, which is can be referred to as the Google of China. So it's the China's leading search engine. Alibaba purposefully blocks Baidu spiders from indexing Taobao. So it doesn't display in the search rankings. You might be like, that's stupid. Why wouldn't they that exposure, but it's simply to force people to start everything on Alibaba's website. I think it would be very difficult for Amazon to do to Google, but it has been a successful strategy for Alibaba. Another type of mode that's being highlighted is that it's, it's much cheaper to retain software engineers for Alibaba than it is in Silicon Valley. And I think those are actually the companies they're competing with. They're competing with Tencent and they're competing with the American conglomerates. Even though we talk commerce, that's really where the next battle is going to be. Talk about cloud, video, streaming, whatever you want to call it. It's a very interesting thing. They have a very different cost structure, primarily because the input, really the labor is is much cheaper. It's 10 times cheaper. And they even, to make sure that they can retain their employees, they're not in Beijing, they're not in Shanghai, they're in Hangzhou. That was purposefully done by Jack Ma so he wouldn't lose his best employees because there are not too many competitors around. And talk about valuation. This is tricky. I have been looking at Alibaba for quite some time, and it pains me to, to say that while I've been looking at Alibaba, the price is just starting to climb leading up to this mastermind meeting, which obviously also means uh, less return. I did manage to take a position, luckily, but not with as much as I wanted to, because the stock is right now trading just short of $184. If I put in my inputs here, most likely scenario 15% growth. I also assign 20% probability to 30% and to 0% if I'm negative. I get around a 9% expected return for Alibaba. I know that 15% sounds extremely generous. Just like to highlight the growth on this company, it's, it's just massive. We're looking at more than 50% here from 2017 to 2018, 58%. And the year before was 56% growth in top line. It's absolutely amazing. But guys, I'm ready to get beaten up, especially about the price and my growth assumptions here. That's the first thing that occurs to me that you you said a 15% growth rate gets you a 9% return. Yes. That's just my bias as always. That makes me very nervous. So just full and frank disclosure, these sort of companies are going to be always too hard for me to to kind of get any view on because I just, I don't trust really high growth. That's just a bias of mine. So you can take my, all of my comments with a grain of salt, just ignore them all as they come through. The other thing that always makes me a little bit nervous about Alibaba 
And I've looked at this a few years ago, I haven't looked at it more recently, but they score close to manipulator on the Ben HM score, which looks at earnings manipulation. And then if you dig into the, the filings, which are always a little bit odd, they create huge numbers of subsidiaries, which I, I just don't really know. They, I think they create a subsidiary at a rate faster than one a day, which just seems to me like, I get it's a very big business, but that's a, it's just a way for us to create sort of some accounting shenanigans if your intentions are bad. And if their intentions are good, then it just kind of complicates the, the financials. So those are my two comments, just that the growth rate is very, very high and the financials are a little bit opaque. So in a country like China, do you think that some of that stuff even matters, Toby? Because whenever I'm looking at this, I just, in my mind, and a lot of it's based on the events that have kind of unfolded more recently with the uh, Huawei company in the US with the mobile company and seeing how the government responded to the CFO of that company getting held in Canada. I just, for me, when I'm looking at any type of large cap and you can't get any bigger than Alibaba in China, when you're looking at at a large cap company in China, I see it as just total, complete indoctrination with the government at this point. This business, people at the highest level are borderline government officials. This is an arm of the government as far as I'm concerned. And when you look at the uh, growth rate on the top line revenue, I mean, the thing's exploding, like Stig said, 50%. So can we as investors treat our analysis of this company the same way as looking at a Apple or a Google here in the United States where you don't necessarily have that complete buy-in from the government. I just think that it's an advantage personally for ownership of this business as an outsider. I agree with what you're saying that the earnings or whatever numbers they're producing might be manipulated, but it's, it's kind of like, so what? What impact is that actually going to have? Maybe, maybe that's a strength instead of a weakness for owning it. I think it's an interesting point you, you bring up. I think for most investors out there that might be thinking, China, no, it's, it's too risky because it's China. And I'm kind of like side with Preston here. I, I don't know if it's good or bad. If anything, I think it's a good thing for Alibaba. And so please allow me to elaborate on that because it might seem a bit odd. I read through this interview with Kai Fu Lee, which is very interesting person. He used to be CEO of Google China. And he talks about the competitive advantage of being one of those big Chinese conglomerates. And he's saying, in the States, everyone talks about antitrust. You don't have that here. Not the same way. <laughs> Talking about the opposite. Yeah. So it's like it's not like, oh, we're going to break this up into like five different companies. You're making too much money. No, that's not what's going to happen if that's not what the government wants. It's sort of like a protection here. And I think Google also experienced that whenever they tried the first time to go to China. I know they're trying here again. It's just very difficult to deal with the authorities. Let me just give you one simple example. Sites that are hosted outside of China, they're slower to load just by definition compared to Chinese companies. To me, that, that's just very interesting. I think if anything, it might be an advantage. It's a Chinese company made by Chinese for Chinese people. I think that is bound to be an advantage, if anything. And perhaps it doesn't matter, but I don't see that as a disadvantage. So I really like your comment about perhaps we can't use our conventional thoughts in terms of thinking about the risk of a company like this. We're through the looking glass, fellas. (laughs) 
<laughs> we're not using conventional metrics anymore. Look, I have no, I have no real view. I think it's very, very expensive. So the only way you justify that valuation is if you have very high rates of growth. It seems to be delivering very high rates of growth, but I have a little bit of trouble with the financials. But I've been wrong on this for a long time, so my two cents aren't worth much here. Toby, please don't get me wrong. Whenever I say conventional measures, it's in terms of private policy, for instance, you know, it's a big deal for Facebook in the states. It's only an advantage for Alibaba, and there is no criticism in terms of how much data they have in terms of the customers. So is that what I mean about the conventional metrics? That it's more, as President said, an arm of the government, and it's if anything, it's fueling the growth. It's not stopping it like we would conventionally see in the states. And Stig, I think that your big buying opportunity on this one was back in December. The price had come off significantly from its high. I think what was the high here? Let me see real fast. It was around two hundred and eight dollars in December this past December. It went clear down to one hundred and thirty-two dollars. I would tell you my expectation on this one is that the revenue just keeps exploding to the upside. I really believe that China's in a boom. This is the the golden child of quote unquote capitalism over there. I don't see anything slowing this train down anytime soon. And so what it really comes down to is as long as that growth continues to chug away, it's really the magnitude of the multiple that you're paying and kind of looking at the range of that multiple of what it's performed at over the last five years. And when you're at the lower end of that multiple, I I would say this is probably a buying opportunity. And when you're at the high end of that multiple, then maybe you, you offload a little bit of it to minimize risk or whatever. But I'm with you. I think that this thing has room to go. Just to give you some some numbers on that. So we're sitting here in the States and we're talking about how online retail is just taking over. At least that's the impression that I have. And I think perhaps a few others. Online retail in the States is like 10% of all retail. It's not a lot if you think about it. It's up from 7.3% in 2015 and expect to be 11.1% in 2019. And it seems like it's just growing so fast. So let's talk about China. Back in 2015, it was 159 in 2018, it was 28.6. In 2019, it's 33.6. Think about that. It's massive. Just the tailwind they're getting for people just following the trend. And you don't even, you're not even talking about the amount of the population that's coming into an urban setting and, and all of that. So I think you combine those two things, the point that you're making, and then you just look at how many cities in China are coming into a very modern type setting. It's happening very aggressively. China, for all intents and purposes, is still an extremely rural country, given the size of the development they're in. Like We're still seeing more and more urbanization in China. And the reason why we really haven't seen that to a full extent is because you can't necessarily just move from the rural area into the city. You lose your privileges and there are quite a few things that the Chinese government put in place. So you just don't see all this flocking to the big cities. Well, one thing in, in your favor, I, I did just look this up. Li Lu, who's uh, Charlie Munger's right-hand man in China, his Himalaya capital management has two holdings, Baidu and Alibaba, and it's like 87% Alibaba. Wow. So that's, that's, a, that's a conviction bet by a man who should know. Wow. It's interesting. You, you should also bring up Baidu, Google of China, whatever we want to call it. It has the most AI scientists in China by number. Not They haven't had the best results with AI, 
But I also think we'd like to bring that up. And again, I, I know I'm quoting Kaifu Lee and he might be you know, wrong on this, but he's talking about those these seven conglomerates who are just looking to be in a pole position to kind of like crack the AI code. So in the States, you would have Google, Amazon, Apple, and Facebook. In China, you have Tencent, Alibaba, and Baidu. I think this is also, this is a bet on, on AI really more than anything. And you have, they have so much data on retail. So that's why I'm thinking like, you know, the tailwind just from following general trend might be, you know, already double digits, but then for them to more efficiently make money based on AI, it's just, I think that's massive. And then I won't say more positive things about Alibaba for now. Stig, I think that last point is your strongest point of all. If we're buying into this idea or this narrative that they're totally indoctrinated with the government, so whether you agree with that or not, I think it's important whether you do. But if you do buy into that argument and they are a leading expert in artificial intelligence and big data and what big data is able to predict through all these neural network models, the government is absolutely nuts to not sustain that relationship or ensure the success of this growth. From what I understand, the government's just completely reliant on understanding everything that they can possibly understand about every single citizen within the country. So what better arm than Alibaba, who's processing financial payments, who's basically your entire commerce arm for the entire country for online purchases? The government can't afford to allow this company to fail to succeed. I, I can say one thing. This is way better than my pick. That's for sure. It's also way more expensive. We're talking about 50% growth rate and not like, how much is this company going to contract? Right? Yeah, no, I, I agree. But look at the trend. Look at this trend. And my expectation for that trend to change is this is not changing in a year. That's for sure. If this trend does change, I mean, I would say at a minimum, you're five years out from now. At a minimum. I don't know. I like it though. I can tell you that. I like it a lot. Yeah, this was a very interesting discussion, guys. And uh, I see ba- Alibaba a um, bit differently. What you see in the price is what we all talked about. They're indoctrinated with the government. They're a massive e-commerce platform. In fact, their their revenues are bigger than Amazon and eBay combined today. And their model is different than Amazon, but still they're in the same space. So all that is baked in. What is the optionality we are getting with Alibaba and also the risk there is I see them more like a venture capital company than just an e-commerce company. If you look at all the investments they make in companies across Asia, they're betting on every startup and many startups, India, Thailand, Philippines, you name it, like they have their venture capital arm, which is much more aggressive. Same with Tencent. Tencent's own shares in Tesla, for example. That's just a popular one, but they own part of many companies. The other part is that that can sometimes backfire. And also that can give you upside that is not seen in price today. So that's the that's the drawback. Unlike, for example, the way Alphabet operates, wherein they also do a lot of venture, but, but they're more organic. The model that Alibaba and Tencent follow is different. The second thing is, I want to be a little bit skeptical too, even though I drink the Kool-Aid of cloud, big data, everything. What I fear in, in not just about Alibaba, but in general is it almost feels like the dot-com era thing, like you know, anything dot 
calm. We kind of, you know, suspend our uh, critical analysis for a while and said, no, this AI is coming. They're very strong in AI. And then are they, if they have machine learning or if they have a big data platform, we have to be a little bit careful. I'm not saying that applies to Alibaba, but I'm just in general saying that just because somebody is good in AI, uh, it I mean, it'll translate into gains. Everybody is into AI right now. Any company you take, they will have AI arm within their company. So that's where we have to be a bit careful because we don't know what they're doing. Of course, they're doing a lot of stuff. Like, for example, Alipay is also giving now scores to their customers based on their purchasing habit and based on their transactions and stuff like that. So they're reshaping the way the Chinese society operates. They're really high growth right now. And their growth depends on the growth of Chinese economy. Their growth depends on how the Chinese economy does in the short term as well as in the long term. If you believe that China might be twice the size of U.S. economy one day, then Alibaba is probably well suited to capitalize on that growth. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one and actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-35. 539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iflexpodcast.com. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. I think uh, you bring up some good points and thank you for being a bit more skeptical. I think that that's much needed. You know, it's, it's interesting what you said about the venture capital that, well, they, they do operate like Tencent, they're buying a, up a lot, but also like to talk about the difference. So Tencent would buy stakes in various companies or even take them over, but they won't really do anything with it. Whereas Alibaba has a very operating mindset. And I think it's because of the data. But again, I, I'm not the one to say that Alibaba's approach is smarter than Tencent's or any other. I think that's a very interesting dynamic that they're trying to really include those companies in the different ways than, you know, company like Berkshire Hathaway, whatever you, you might say. This is now a part of this data machine that they are, they're doing. I think you're right that it's a bet on China, but it's also a bet on the world. It's really embedded into Alibaba from the very beginning. Jack Ma has publicly stated that 24-hour delivery in all of China, if you've been to China, you would know how insane that sounds. And then 72 hours delivery worldwide. They're already in 200 different countries. Not that efficiently, not the same way as they are in China, but that is definitely the goal. And also, I think that Toby's right whenever he's talking about, you know, it's, it's difficult to value a company of this size. Like, what's it worth? Let me just give you one example. You know, we talked about Ant Financial that owns Alipay. They also run the biggest money market fund in the world, more than $200 billion. This is really the go-to place for so many Chinese. They have so many different things that they're doing. Uh, I know we're primarily talking about e-commerce, which is really the driver, but there's a good chance that they might start making their money somewhere else. I really like to talk about the cloud here and throw it over to you, Hari. Perhaps you have a comment on that. Perhaps you want to do your own pick afterwards. But it seems to me, you know, if I'm looking at the cloud and I'm sitting here with my company, I would, you know, I might be considering Amazon, Google, Microsoft, whatnot. I don't think I would ever think about Alibaba. I think there's, there might just be some kind of a, I don't know, culture barrier there. If I feel that way and perhaps I'm wrong, is it the other way around also? Like if I'm sitting here in China's booming economy and you know it's growing so and so and that fast, would my go-to place, would they just be Alibaba or potentially Tencent as also starting up cloud? Would I even consider moving to Amazon, Google? In your shoes, is that the way to look at the cloud market in the future? The way I see is most companies in the West will find it really hard to choose Alibaba or Tencent as their cloud pick. Azure, Microsoft Azure, or uh, Google Compute, GCP over here. And also, most of the companies would never stick to one cloud vendor. They would always try to diversify just to make sure that you don't have vendor lock-ins. That's my understanding, at least at this current stage. However, the story might be different in Asia, 
there might be countries who are more willing to try Alibaba and Tencent's cloud offerings. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and uh, transition over to uh, Hari's pick here. Hari, you were uh, you were bouncing all around on the email. Curious what you're going to come up with here. One of the things that I think, Kristen, you already spoke about it during the beginning of the podcast, that I'm really not so comfortable with the valuations today in any asset class. Recently, I think Harvard Marx has come up with a book in his interviews. He has famously said that, you know, this is probably one of the longest recovery cycles, almost 10 years now. The time now is to be more defensive. He's not asking us to sell all of our stocks, but he's saying like, this is the time to think defensive and not play offensive. Yep. And the reason I was bouncing around was as an individual investor today, my focus is to protect my downside. I'm not looking at too much of upside as, as long as I remember a tweet, Kristen, that you had some time back that Fed is mewling over the thought of making quantitative easing as a regular tool in their arsenal. Mm-hmm. And that always makes me nervous holding the cash. It's like the inverse of buyback. We are holding a stock. So as an individual investor, since we are only talking about equities in this mastermind, so I thought I want to take a pick that satisfies the following criteria. Number one, it has a reasonably strong moat and a proven track record to withstand restrictions and competition over a period of time. It has a good, strong balance sheet so that it can survive any financial disruptions or liquidity crunch. And also number three, it is not going to be adversely impacted by trade conflicts and is reasonably valued. I mean, it's really hard to find bargains. Only Toby can do that. So (laughs) I I, I don't have his magic screen. And I was looking, looking at one of my previous picks back in 2016, 15 and 16, I had pitched Union Pacific, which is a railroad. Then I thought Microsoft might be a better pick after I saw Stick pitching Alibaba in, his, uh, in the email. So that's why I'm going to talk about Microsoft, maybe Union Pacific later in some other mastermind. Microsoft kind of fits all the five criteria I just laid out. I don't know about the valuation. That's where I will leave it to you guys who are the experts. The thing about Microsoft is that it's a old dog, tried and tested, has gone through many cycles has an 88% market share in office and productivity. That's their biggest mode. Every Fortune 500 company pretty much uses Microsoft Office. With Satya coming on board in 2014, they went through a long period where they lost the direction. That's all behind them now. What Satya has done is put Azure or cloud in front and center. He's using their current strengths and assets very well. For example, Microsoft getting into Zulu, which is a music player, their misadventure, whereas cloud is right in their circle of competence. The reason being they have already so much of on-premise installations, whether it is their servers or databases, that it's much easier for them to migrate their customers to cloud. Number two, a lot of customers trust them more compared to AWS because of some of the competitive dynamics. So those tailwinds and Azure is growing at a rate of 75% annually. Of course, it's a small base now, like 5 to $7 billion, but it's expected to grow. When I say Azure, I'm only talking about their infrastructure as a service. If you talk about their what they call as intelligent cloud, which is their entire cloud business, which includes both infrastructure as a service, software as a service, and platform as a service, that's... $32 billion today. So they're actually the leaders in SaaS today. 
with 22% market share. And the SaaS business over a period of next few years, by 2022, just the SaaS business is, according to Gartner, is projected to be around $114 billion in terms of TAM. And the overall cloud is expected to be around 280 to $300 billion in total addressable market. I'm talking about infrastructure, software, platform, and business process as a service. So Microsoft is in that market. They have really good pricing power, both in their traditional market, the productivity by acquisition, acquiring LinkedIn and now GitHub. They're also closing in on their developer tools market. Gaming is kind of their 9% of their revenue, not big deal, but still they have 56 monthly active users for Xbox Live. I mean, just to give you context, in 2016, when LinkedIn was still public, monthly active users were around 100 million. So in terms of valuation, I think so far in the past 10 years, their revenues has grown close to 7%. I expect the current tailwinds and with Azure, it will be definitely more than 6 to 7%. I have no idea how much it will be. Their operating margins were are close to 30% now, but as Azure scales, the reason I'm expecting the operating margin to improve over the next 5 to 10 years is that as Azure scales, they're building a lot of data centers. They're putting in a lot of capital to do that. So their operating margins should improve with scale. Based on all this information, I believe price to sales around 7 compared to say Amazon 82 price through earnings. Based on all these factors, I feel safer parking my cash in Microsoft compared to say just having it in cash. So I'm not expecting huge returns. I'm expecting decent returns that will beat inflation. That's on the downside. On the upside, if my hypothesis of more than 8% CAGR in terms of revenue and margin improvement all holds true, it might give me some pleasant surprises in the next five years. Microsoft's a spectacular business. There's no question about that. The issue for me is the valuation. On all of the ratios, it's really expensive, which, you know, it's got very high rates of growth. So that might compensate you for it. But I kind of struggle to get to the valuation where it is. I think fair value could be, you know, kind of half where it is. I hate to say that it's kind of assuming very high rates of growth, but Deep value guys are struggling a little bit in this market and I'm one of them. So I freely admit that this is, uh, once again, it's just, I, I just don't trust those high rates of growth. So that's my two cents. Hari, I didn't get much of a uh, return on this one either. I echo Toby's comment where this is a fantastic, fantastic business. It's hard It's hard to find a business that can fire on all, on all cylinders and produce the stability that they have at the growth rate that they have at the market cap that they have. I find it quite impressive, but unfortunately, there's a lot of people in the market that agree with that opinion and they're bidding the price higher, which is pushing your yield a lot lower. Whenever I did the uh, intrinsic value on this, I'm assuming that the company grows at about a 5% growth rate and I'm getting similar a similar IRR to what I think you'd get out of the S&P 500. My analysis is if I if I feel like I'm going to get the same return of an individual stock that I would get out of the S&P 500, it's lower risk in my opinion to just own the S&P 500 than to 
push myself into an individual company that I expect the same return out of. That's kind of where it's hard for me to uh, buy into it. Now, you might be right. If we would go into a correction, a company like Microsoft might outperform the market because it's not going to be penalized as bad because it's, it is so consistent in its revenues. It's so consistent in its net income and its cash flows that it might bear a downturn better than other businesses. And, and in that case, you beat the market. So that's something that somebody's going to have to uh, analyze themselves of whether that's worth it or not. And you know, I would I'd tell you that's a coin toss, whether that's a true statement or not. So on the valuation side, Toby and Tristan, both uh, you guys pointed out that your fair value, if I'm correct, will be half of what it is today. So around in the 60s or 70s. The question I have for you is, let's say you got it at 60 or 70. What would you do? Would you still keep it at these levels or sell it? I mean, that's a really tricky question because it comes down to what your capital gains is. If you realize that as a long-term gain, then you're going to be in a lower tax bracket. So you got to figure out that friction of how much you're going to lose in your tax bill. And then more importantly, what asset are you then shoving that the capital that you generated from the sale? What return are you getting on what your what your opportunity is? It's a opportunity cost kind of question after you account for the friction of paying your tax bill for that gain. So without knowing the yield that I would expect to get on the buy side after the sale of that company, I can't intelligently answer that question. Yeah, it's probably a hold. If you bought it cheaply and you've got it here, I'd probably still getting reasonable and you don't want to pay those taxes. I'd keep on holding it. But I think Preston's points are, are right. Let's say you're going to make a venture capital investment with the money and you have a lot of faith in whatever you're doing and you're going to get a high yield. Your expectations you're getting a high yield for low risk. That's where you would say, okay, this thing's only going to yield at 3%. The tax that I'm going to have to pay is substantial for something like that, If it's if, especially if it's a short-term gain. But you have to do all that mental gymnastics and all that math to kind of figure out whether that'd be a good decision or not. Got it. Thanks. Stig, you had a question. I really like your your thought process about saying, oh, is, is this just a placeholder for cash? And I, th- I think that's worth a note. I also did the numbers on uh, Microsoft and I think, you know, I probably get around just short of 4% return. This is not super attractive and, you know, it's, it's not too much more than what I expect out of the S&P 500, as Preston mentioned. So one might argue, should I do that? Should I get the 500 stocks instead? I have been considering for my own portfolio, just what you mentioned there, you know, instead of just holding it in cash, which just seems to be a, you are paying the opportunity cost on that. Would it make sense to while you wait, hold them in you know, 10, 20 different high quality stocks that might yield slightly more than the market, knowing the, that if the market does take a hit, as I think most of us expect, will it then just not slide as much and you can take some of that cash and put into a different company? Is that a good approach? I think it's an interesting discussion you bring up. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, especially if you're not you know, actively or too actively looking at the market. You have a very long time horizon. Uh, you just want like, to take that monthly cash flow because that's strategy. Just always plow that into something. Doing something like Microsoft might not be too bad if you feel that you know 3 or 4% and not too much of a, of a downside is what you're looking for. I don't see this pick for, for obvious reasons going anywhere. You mentioned Microsoft's position in the cloud right now, which is just, you know, in the cloud itself is just the growth rate you see is just amazing. Who do you think are positioned best? Do you think that is Microsoft also giving, you know, the results you've seen from Microsoft in the cloud business over the past 12, 14 months? I've been looking into who are the major players and the way cloud, unfortunately, it's a very heterogeneous market in the sense that 
have software as a service or infrastructure as a service. AWS is by far the dominant leading player in infrastructure as a service with almost 50% market share. And Microsoft, like around 18% market share. So that's number two. Google is a distant third with three to 4% market share. In fact, in 2017, Alibaba and Google were kind of tied at the third spot. IBM has completely lost its uh, IAS position. Of course, it's distant fourth or so. When I see the tailwinds, I see Microsoft as one of the leading players because of their presence in all the stacks, whether it's infrastructure, which is when I say infrastructure as a service, it is basically think of it as like computers for hire on the cloud. Basically, it's storage, it's compute, that is CPUs. And then when I say platform as a service, it's add-ons on top of these infrastructure, like whether you have a virtualization or an operating platform on top of this basic compute infrastructure. And then on top of that, when you provide certain software, whether it can be CRM, like the way Salesforce, Workday, all these guys do, or ERP, or even productivity suite, like Office 365 that Microsoft is providing. And then there is also data as a service. That's a new category that Gartner introduced recently, wherein Oracle, Microsoft, and other companies, even AWS, they're providing their data infrastructure, or think of it like database on the cloud, basically, to be simplistic, so that you don't have to maintain the big data infrastructure on-premise. And I have seen that there is a huge consolidation in this market in the last two to three years. And Google, Amazon, and Microsoft are emerging as the three players who are of significance. And the order is Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. We're just always so thankful to have Toby and Hari on the show. Guys, I want to uh, give you the opportunity to tell our audience about where they can learn more about you. And I think it's really important to highlight Toby's got a new podcast that he's going to be starting. I don't know what kind of consistency Toby plans on doing shows, but Toby, tell us about that and tell the audience where they can learn more about you guys. I've got a new podcast called The Acquirers Podcast that'll be popping up on the Acquirers Multiple website, acquirersmultiple.com slash podcast. First episode goes out March 11. We're going to be recording on video, put onto YouTube and on audio distributed through all of your favorite podcast platforms. Basically, I'm going to be interviewing other entrepreneurs, investors, authors to see if I can figure out that little insight that they've had that helps them to beat the market or to beat their competitors or to manage risk. So it's going to be the type of stuff that I'm focused on, deep value investing, buyouts, activism, special situations. And I want to know how to pick stocks, how to manage risk, how to deal with bad luck, how to maximize success. If you can get any of it, it's been a long time between drinks for me. So see me make a fool of myself on my new podcast. Hari business.com. That's my blog. And on Twitter, my handle is Hari Rama. I look forward to the conversation. All right, guys. Well, we really appreciate you guys coming on the show and uh, sharing your comments and your feedback and your knowledge. We just always look forward to these. All right, guys. So before I let you go, please remember to sign up to our newsletter at tipemail.com and we will automatically send all our intrinsic value assessments directly to your inbox. But guys, that was all that Preston and I had for this week's episode of the Ambassadors Podcast. We see each other again next week. Thanks for listening to TIP. To access the show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. 
To get your questions played on the show, go to asktheinvestors.com and win a free subscription to any of our courses on TIP Academy. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making investment decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the TIP Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Yeah, 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 yeah.